investors. No political party has an edge over the conscience of an honest public servant. My first exposure to high finance and politics came in the late 1950s and early 60s when I sold cattle and ranches to wealthy people who needed tax shelters. When the Internal Revenue Service tried to do away with the tax shelter benefits in 1960, I joined forces with the National Cattlemen's Association to try to protect the subsidy. At a House Ways and Means Committee hearing, I recall arguing with Representative Wilbur Mills, the powerful committee chairman, that reducing this tax benefit would result in farmers producing fewer breeding cattle, which in turn would raise beef prices and irreparably harm America's consumers. In retrospect, it was a specious argument. But I learned that one of the Washington's lobbyists' most common tools is to cloak business benefits in the garb of some supposed public good, and was always alert for it thereafter. My life changed dramatically when one of the prospects I called upon, M. Peter Schweitzer, then a top official of Kimberly Clark, said to me, Arthur, if you can sell cows, chances are you'd be good at selling stock. He told me his son-in-law, Arthur Carter, was starting up a brokerage firm with a group of friends and that they were looking for suitable partners. I met with Carter and signed on with his tiny firm. My partners were Carter, today the owner of the New York Observer newspaper, Roger Berlin, now a successful Broadway producer, and Sandy Weil, the current chairman of Citigroup. I embraced the craft of the broker endeavoring to help my clients, but always mindful of how a buy or sell transaction might help our profits. Most of the brokers I encountered were good, honest, and intelligent business people, but their primary motivation came from a compensation system that rewarded them for the number of transactions they executed, not on how well client portfolios performed. Even when the best course of action was to do nothing in a client's account, the commission system encouraged brokers to recommend sometimes questionable trades. We knew, for example, that we would get five times the normal commission by placing secondary offerings, shares issued by companies that had already gone public but needed more capital, with our customers. 100 shares of AT&T, for example, at $40 a share, paid a 1% commission for a total of $40. But the commission on 100 shares in a secondary offering of the same AT&T stock was 5% or $200. Our motivation was self-interest, pure and simple. As our firm struggled to develop new lines of business, it was my job to call on state agencies and communities around the country to secure the lucrative franchise of underwriting their municipal bonds. When I solicited investment banking business from companies considering a public offering, I spoke about our retail distribution, as well as the fact that our analysts' coverage would be vital to getting their story out. Retail distribution meant that our sales managers would pressure our salespeople to sell these underwritings. Analyst coverage, of course, was always favorable. I can recall no sell recommendations, 
there must have been some, during my years with the firm. I came to understand the motivations of CEOs who cared only about the price of their stock, often to the exclusion of any long-term vision for their company. To persuade our brokers to place more of their securities in customer accounts, corporate heads conveyed important company information to our sales and research departments that was not yet available to the investing public. At the same time, I heard from many, many retail clients that the big guys get information before the general public, and that the small investor will always play second fiddle to large institutions and people in the know. What I witnessed was just the tip of the iceberg, the web of dysfunctional relationships among analysts, brokers, and corporations would grow increasingly worse over the coming decades, and ending it would be one of my primary goals at the Securities and Exchange Commission. While I'm proud of helping to build one of America's largest and most distinguished brokerage and investment banking firms, and remain friendly with most of my partners and co-workers, I grew uncomfortable with practices and attitudes that were misleading and sometimes deceptive. Over the next 20 years, these issues would continue to nag at me. I had an agenda, but not a forum. The ideal forum would be the SEC chairmanship, which, if offered, I would have accepted without hesitation. By the time Bill Clinton tapped me for the post in 1992, almost six months after he became president, I had spent 16 years as an executive of a brokerage firm, 12 years at the American Stock Exchange, and four years as the publisher of a newspaper about Congress. I'd like to think my Wall Street and Washington experience recommended me, but I suppose the $750,000 I raised as one of 22 co-chairmen of a New York dinner for Clinton just before the 1992 nominating convention might not have been lost on the new president's inner circle. From the day President Clinton nominated me, I knew I wanted the individual investor to be my passion, and I wanted to pursue change in a nonpartisan way. When I arrived at the SEC in July 1993, we were in the third year of a bull market which would run for another seven years. Individual investors were buying stocks as never before. On the surface, everything seemed fine. But there was much about Wall Street and corporate America that made me uneasy. For instance, many CEOs were paying more attention to managing their share price than their business. Companies technically were following accounting rules, while in reality revealing as little as possible about their actual performance. The supposedly independent accounting firms were working hand-in-glove with corporate clients to try to water down accounting standards. When that wasn't enough, they were willing accomplices, helping companies disguise the true story behind the numbers. With one-third of accounting firm revenues coming from management consulting in 1993, that proportion would balloon to 51% within six years. It was hard not to conclude that auditors had become partners with corporate management rather than the independent watchdogs they were meant to be. 
CEOs and their finance chiefs had learned they could indirectly control their stock price by currying favor with research analysts. Some were trading important information about earnings and product development with selected analysts, who in return were writing glowing reports. Analysts were often paid more to help their firms win investment banking deals than for the quality of their research. This unholy alliance was producing revenue for the analyst firm, but hardly any benefits for most of their clients. Mutual funds and pension funds were getting far better information, and a lot earlier than retail investors. Because of their muscle, they were also getting superior service and better prices when they bought or sold securities. Mutual funds were very successful at passing themselves off as investor-friendly, but they had their own more subtle ways of taking investors' money through a confusing array of fees. For my 12 years as chairman of the American Stock Exchange, I knew that investors were almost totally in the dark about how the stock markets worked. Collusive practices among NASDAQ dealers were costing investors billions of dollars a year. At the New York Stock Exchange, floor brokers, specialists, and listed companies set the agenda, one that protected their franchise, sometimes at the expense of investor interests. Individual investors were unaware of this side of Wall Street, and yet they were the victims of these long-standing conflicts. I wasn't alone in my observations, either. Frank Zarb, with whom I worked at Cheerson Hayden Stone, and who would later become head of the National Association of Securities Dealers and the NASDAQ stock market, first urged me to attack pay-to-play in the municipal bond market. Shortly after my confirmation, several CEOs pleaded with me to end the unseemly practice of leaking corporate information to analysts. An analyst sent me confidential letters exposing how selective disclosure had become routine on Wall Street. They wanted me to stop it, even though they were beneficiaries. I now had an agenda and a forum. But that didn't mean I could do what I wanted. I first had to build up political capital. Many successful businessmen failed to make the transition from CEO to Washington official, leaving town after a couple of miserable years without achieving much. I was determined not to let that happen to me. When I came to Washington, I had a pretty clear understanding of how the main power centers worked. Once I began pursuing my agenda, however, I saw a dynamic I hadn't fully witnessed before. The ability of Wall Street and corporate America to combine their considerable forces to stymie reform efforts. Working with a largely sympathetic Republican-controlled Congress, the two interest groups first sought to co-opt me. When that didn't work, they turned their guns on me. I first saw it happen on the issue of stock options. I spent nearly one-third of my first year at the Commission meeting with business leaders who opposed a Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB proposal, that if adopted as a final rule, would have required companies to count their stock options as an expense on the financial statement. Dozens of CEOs and Washington's most skillful lobbyists came to my office 
to urge me not to allow this proposal to move forward. At the same time, they flooded Capitol Hill and won the support of lawmakers who didn't take the time to understand the complexities of the issue and the proposed solution. Fearful of an overwhelming override of the proposal, I advise the FASB to back down. I regard this as my single biggest mistake during my years of service. From there, I skirmished many times with the business community and Wall Street. During this period, the stock market rose to incredible heights. Online trading became cool, luring millions of middle-class savers into believing that investing was a no-lose game. They traded impulsively, many basing their decisions on recommendations they heard on financial news shows, which were almost always buy. Investors snapped up initial public offerings of companies about which they knew very little except that an analyst told them it was the next new thing. But what investors didn't know was that many analysts were plugging companies that had banking relationships with the analyst firm. For corporate executives, managing short-term earnings to meet the market's expectations became all-consuming, along with keeping the share price high so they could reap big rewards by cashing in their stock options. Business clout was evident as we tried to stop the gamesmanship. Our cause was not helped by the fact that the economy was growing fast, the market was shooting upward, and investors were pleased by the plump returns their mutual funds and online trades were getting. My message, that the bull market would not last forever, and that it was covering up a multitude of sins, did not go over well. I came to recognize certain behavioral patterns when business groups became concerned about certain commission actions. The first indication of trouble was often a staff discussion between one of the SEC division heads and an aide at one of our congressional overseers' offices. A gentle letter from the committee chairman signaled the start of a skirmish. Face-to-face -face visits were next followed by hearings, press releases, and ultimately, a drawn-out, costly battle. The odds against the public interest were narrowed somewhat by the press. One of the only ways to alter the business public interest balance was to see to it that the media understood an issue and wrote about it. Without an informed press, SEC cases against the NASD, the New York Stock Exchange, and the municipal bond market would not have succeeded. I can recall many instances when investigative reporters broke...